third aspect of our Mission of God series, which is entitled simply Gospel. And it's one of the most important lessons that I will preach this year, simply because it hopefully, I'm, I'm going to try my best to try and clear up some misunderstanding that I know I have experienced in my life, and perhaps you have too, in regards to this word called gospel. Last week, Easter Sunday, we focused on, of course, what Jesus did there at the cross. And uh, Nathan just talked in the communion thoughts about, you know, what Jesus accomplished for us. And Paul would write in 1 Corinthians how that he received uh, what he had received, he passed on to them of first importance. And he says, here is the core of the story. It's Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection according to the scriptures. But what we didn't look at last week was the two verses that preceded this. And so if you go back to verses 1 and 2, here's what Paul says. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel. And then he goes on to say, I preached to you which you received and which you've taken your stand by this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you've believed in vain. And I want you to notice the significance of that word gospel in these two verses. Romans 1, verse 16. When I was, I don't know, 15, 16 years old, uh, our church had a young preacher's class. And we would meet every Sunday night at 5 o'clock, and, and the preacher would, would gather us, about five or six of us guys, and he would give us scriptures to memorize. And this was the first one we had to memorize. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. And then Paul goes on to say, because it is the power of God that brings salvation. Now, the, the problem is, is that I wasn't quite sure at that age. In fact, even today. I sometimes think, wow, there's another perspective that I wished I'd known a long time ago. And so if you hear the word the gospel, what do you think about? What comes to your mind? You know, I just went on and I Googled it. I thought, let's see what, you know, the world thinks when they look at the word gospel. And the first thing that has the priority is what we call gospel music. Now, if you were like me, I, I grew up going to church, and our family, every Sunday morning, would watch a program way back then called the Gospel Singing Jubilee. Blake, I don't know if you ever heard of it, but it was a group that had singers like the Happy Goodman family and the Florida Boys and, you know, the Blackwood Brothers and all these different gospel groups. And so the word gospel was used as an adjective. Or have you ever someone, had someone to say to you this, what I'm telling you is the gospel truth? as opposed to just the truth. You know, I mean, I want you to think about that for a moment. Does the word gospel in front of it somehow make it more truthful than it was without the word? And so I'm always suspicious when someone says, I'm telling you the gospel truth. Sure you are. Or what about this? Gospel preachers and gospel meetings. You know, uh, I'll be going next weekend, I'll be down in Mississippi in a gospel meeting, Right? And, of course, once again, it's a word that we take that in the New Testament is a noun or a verb that implies a noun, and we make an adjective out of it. And then we, we talk about the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
And so just, just a casual look at the word and you see that we use it in all kinds of ways. And so if I were to ask you this question right now, if you had to take out a card and answer this question, how would you define the word gospel? How would you define it? What would it mean? And I'm not talking about the etymology of the word. I'm talking about what does it really mean? And why is that important? And of course it's important because Paul says that is God's power. That's where salvation comes from. And, and if we're going to have any kind of effect on this community here in Hendersonville and the people that we work with and the people that we live in neighborhoods with, people we associate with, we need to have a good grasp. What does this word gospel really mean? Now growing up, and I'm going to just kind of tell you my own personal journey here. I thought it meant this. You, we would, we'd go around, for instance, we would knock doors and we would give out gospel tracts. Again, adjective. And on these gospel tracts would be these steps. We called it the gospel plan of salvation. And we would talk about five things. And of course, you had the little five-finger exercise. You need to hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. That's the gospel. And growing up, that's what I heard all the time. You know, we need to tell people the gospel. They need to hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. Now, let me say something. I want you to hear me very clearly. I believe in every one of these things. I believe in every one of the scriptures that's listed there. But I think we need to step back and ask ourselves, are we clear on what it, the gospel really is? And what I want to present over the next three or four or five minutes is what I call aspects of the gospel. You could call it components of the gospel. I really didn't know what to, how to title these slides. I mean, I, I put in several words and I kept getting frustrated. I didn't like, and I don't like the word aspects, but it's the best I could come up with. But when you think of the word gospel as it's used in the New Testament, you find that Scripture actually looks at it from several different angles. The first thing is, is that the gospel is simply the good news. You turn over in the book of Acts, and when Peter begins his first gospel sermon, we call it, Acts chapter 2, Jesus has been raised from the dead, he spent 40 days with the apostles, he's ascended back to heaven, he's poured out the Holy Spirit, and Peter gets up, and having defended the apostles from the accusation that they're drunk because they're speaking in tongues, he turns to the crowd and says, fellow Israelites, listen to this, Jesus of Nazareth. There's the good news. Jesus of Nazareth. And then he would preach this sermon that in, in Acts chapter 2 is, is you know, kind of uh, condensed because here's 12 guys all preaching in different languages to a mass of people who have assembled there. And when Peter gets to the end of the message, here's how he ends it. Therefore, let all Israel, Israelites, now let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. There's the gospel. It is the good news. But then there's a second aspect of it, also found in Acts chapter 2. And this is where I think we get confused sometimes. Because when we think of this word gospel, I mean, we use it in so many different ways. The second aspect or component is the response. 
And the response is what? When the people responded to Peter and said, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter's reply is this. Repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. And so you have the preaching of the gospel first. Then you have the response to the gospel second. You see it over in Mark 16, uh, excuse me, 2 Thessalonians 1, 8. Paul uses it, and Peter says the same thing over in one of his epistles. He uses it in the sense of, yes, you have the gospel, and because of the gospel, there's something to obey that comes out of your response. And so notice what Peter says. He will, excuse me, Paul says here, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel. In other words, this good news that is preached will automatically uh, enlist some type of response. And so there is a response that is a response of obedience, and there's a response that is a response of disobedience. Mark 16, the text I mentioned just a moment ago. Here's the Great Commission from Mark's perspective. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Preach the good news to all of creation. And then notice the response. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. And then the negative response. And whoever does not believe. In other words, to use Paul's words, who doesn't obey. They're going to be condemned. And so you have the good news. Then you have the response. And then continuing in Acts 2, you have the benefits or the blessings. In other words, what happens when someone obeys the gospel? In other words, they respond to it in a positive way. And the answer there in Mark 16, verse 16 is, they'll be saved. Passage that, again, were among those passages I had to memorize as a young man. Peter would put it this way in Acts 2. You'll receive the forgiveness of sins and also the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's why this is important. Because of the way I was raised, we spent far more time on the response than we did either the message or the blessing aspect. I mean, we focused on that center one. And that was the one that was so important. And and we just assumed everybody knew the good news. That's an assumption we cannot make today. We just cannot do it. I talk to Lipscomb professors who, in teaching Bible classes now, will get up and they'll say in Bible class, for instance, well, you remember what Abraham in the Old Testament, and somebody will raise their hand in class and go, who is Abraham and what's the Old Testament? I mean, something that a lot of us growing up automatically knew, many people in our world today have no clue what we're talking about. You know, it's kind of in many ways the way I think of St. Patrick's Day. I mean, you say to me, Leslie, what's St. Patrick's Day? Well, it's March 17th. You wear something green. If you don't, you get pinched, right? I mean, it's just a day of celebration of St. Patrick. Okay, who's St. Patrick? Well, he's a saint. Yeah. And he evidently is from Ireland because he's green. Okay? When did he live? I don't have a clue. When did he die? I don't have a clue. What did he do? I guess he was a witness to Christ, but I really don't know anything about that. I mean, a lot of people in our world are kind of the way we are with St. Patrick's Day. We we know who St. Patrick is because we celebrate his life one day a year. We just don't know anything about the man. 
And that's why the good news is so very, very important. In the New Testament, there are two words that, that are translated gospel in, in, in the New Testament itself. One is uh, euangelizo. And euangelizo is, is the verb. But it's a verb that has a noun component to it. In other words, it's the one who brings good news. And then the noun version of it, and by the way, euangelizo is 55 times, mostly in Matthew, Mark, and then over in Paul. And then you have the word euangelion. Euangelion is the noun version of it, used 77 times. And, and it's used uh, over, uh, let, let me rephrase that, euangelizo is primarily Luke and Paul. Euangelion is Matthew, Mark, and Paul as well. Interestingly, John never uses either of the words. I mean, you turn over to John's gospel, where's the word gospel? It's not there, except in the title. And yet, John is all about the gospel. I mean, it is the good news of who Jesus Christ is. Now, what I want you to notice about these words is, notice the very center of the words. Angel. Because it's, it's built on the same root word. And, and of course, angel, the problem with angelos in, in Greek is that we think of it as being, you know, one of these creatures that God created that praises him all the time and he sends to earth from time to time. These are angels. The word actually in the first century simply meant a messenger. That's all it meant. I mean, when my boys were young, if I were to say to one of them, hey, go take this message to mom, that would mean they're angels. Even though there were plenty of times they weren't angels. Because the message says, you need to do something about this boy. You know. I mean, he's out of control, you know. But, but the word angel simply means a messenger. And both of these words simply mean someone who brings, and notice the letters E-U in front. E-U means good, well. And so a, a euangelion was a good message, good news. And it was used primarily in times of war. For instance, if the army won a great victory, they would send someone to tell the city, hey, I've got euangelion, I've got good news. Or if someone was born, angels in the field, I bring you good news, good tidings of great joy. Why? In the city of Bethlehem, the Savior's been born, Christ the Lord. I mean, good news. And it was used especially in the ancient world in regards to emperors. Augustus Caesar. Augustus was the great nephew of Julius Caesar. And when Julius Caesar was assassinated, he made Augustus his heir. He adopted him as his son. And immediately, civil war breaks out. I mean, Julius Caesar had kind of been the leader of the Roman Republic. And then civil war breaks out. You've got Cassius and you've got Brutus, the assassins, against Augustus and his allies. And, and they fought against each other. And then once Cassius and Brutus was defeated, then Augustus and, and his allies turned on each other. And you may remember the most famous of those is Mark Anthony. And Mark Anthony had a girlfriend by the name of Cleopatra. You probably watched movies about them. And they finally met in a gigantic naval battle and, and, and Augustus was victorious and Mark Anthony and Cleopatra committed suicide. And finally, after years of civil war, years of civil war, Augustus takes the throne. He's now the emperor of Rome and ushers in the Pax Romana, the great Roman peace. 
And, and it was just good news. Everybody's like, we've got an emperor finally. The war is over. I bring you good news. And of course, we've done that. We've had events very much like this. Gospel is the good news. The good news that changes the world and people's lives in particular. Illustration. You go to your tax accountant. And the tax accountant comes in and says, I got good news. You're getting a refund. And you go, whoo! And he says, five dollars. And you go, whoo! You know, five dollars. You know, that's good news. But it's not good news that's going to change the world or change your life, right? Let's just admit that. On the other hand, you have someone call you up and they say, I'm from such and such law firm and uh, I just need to tell you that your great uncle uh, left you $5 million in his will. Now that's when you go, yahoo, you know. I mean, that's good news that's going to change your life. Maybe not change the world, but it's going to change your life. And so from time to time, we have this good news that is literally world-changing. May 1945, VE Day. Hitler finally commits suicide. Germany surrenders. And boy, everywhere, people are celebrating. And then four months later, you have VJ Day. Y'all remember the picture? I mean, Life magazine. The sailors walking down, you know, Times Square, and they announced that the Japanese had unconditionally surrendered. And as he's walking down, this is a dental assistant, y'all. And she had stepped out just to see, wow, look at all the excitement. This is great when this Navy guy grabs her and they grab a picture right as they kiss. They didn't even know each other. Today, that guy would go to prison for that, right? I mean, he would. But back then, it was just a way of celebrating. Now, no celebrations like this after church, all right? Isaiah, in the Septuagint, would say a time is coming when there's going to be good news. And starting in Isaiah 40, where you have these servant psalms, these are songs about Jesus. And, and in fact, the whole section here, all the way through 66, is about what God is going to do through the Messiah and for the world. And notice how he begins, you who bring good news. And in the Septuagint, that's euangelion. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high hill. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. I want you to hear that message. Isaiah says the time is coming when you can point to one individual and say this is God in the flesh. And that's life-changing. And notice 41, 27, 52, 7, 61, 1, all of them say the exact same thing. We've got good news for the world. God has come down. And nothing's ever going to be the same. We see John the Baptist struggling with this. He had been there as he immersed Jesus in the water. He had watched as heaven opened up. Uh, the Holy Spirit descended like a dove. God spoke from heaven itself. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And yet John is thrown in prison. And John, as he's in prison, evidently gets incredibly depressed. If the world is changing, if, if there's good news, why am I in prison facing death? And so he sends disciples. Are you the one or should we expect someone else? 
And Jesus says to him, go back and report to John what you hear and what you see. And I want you to notice the good news. The blind receive their sight. I remember when I was at Freed Hardeman, there was a young man who was a classmate of mine named Randy. Randy had gone blind shortly after birth, so never remembered seeing. And Randy wanted to be a minister so bad, and, and did, became a minister. And I've lost touch with Randy, but Randy was an amazing individual. He used to say to me in June when we were in grad school, he'd say, do you mind if I come over and watch MASH with you tonight? And of course, he couldn't watch MASH. But he'd sit there and he would listen, and whenever everybody would start laughing, he, he'd turn to me in June and say, what happened, what happened, what happened? You know. And, and Randy was just one of those guys that I loved so much. I remember he told me the story. He said, yeah, he said, one night I was walking at Freed, and a guy, it was nighttime, you know, and of course he walked with a cane, and a guy met me, met me and he said to me, Randy, it sure is dark tonight, isn't it? And he said, I said, I said it sure is. Can you imagine him receiving his sight? I mean, would that be good news? Or if you're lame, walking, leper cured. And then you get down to the end of it, and it says, and the good news, the gospel, is proclaimed to the poor. Something that's going to change their lives. Not that they're going to get an inheritance from a great uncle. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about something more powerful than that. A way of looking at life that says everything is different now. I mean, when I get up in the morning and I look at the news and I look how crazy the world is that we live in, if ever there was a need for good news, it's right now. Can you just give me some good news? And Isaiah said yes, and Jesus said yes. And that message is, here's your God. He has come. And so Mark begins this marvelous series that we call the four Gospels with the words, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, or as the old King James says, the beginning of the Gospel. Now, I want us to pause just for a moment because I want to, I want to just explore as we bring our lesson to a close. What, what does the New Testament do with this word? Because even the New Testament sees it as being just bigger than one concept. That's why when you turn to certain passages, you're like, okay, here's the gospel here, here's the gospel here, here's the gospel here. I mean, are all these the gospel? And the answer is yes, but it's very much like a bullseye of where you move out from the center, and as you move out, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, right in the center, what is the gospel? One word, Jesus. That's the gospel. If someone were to say, Leslie, give me one word that defines the gospel, it is Jesus. That's why when you turn over to Acts chapter 8, you have this beautiful story of a eunuch who's been up to Jerusalem to worship. And I don't know if you know about what the law said about eunuchs. Here's a man, he's wealthy. He's a treasurer of the queen of Ethiopia. I mean, he's riding in a chariot. He even owns a copy of the Isaiah scroll, which was absolutely worth a fortune. And he had gone up to Jerusalem to worship, and yet, because he was a eunuch, he couldn't even go in the temple. I mean, he had to worship from the outside looking in. 
Which, by the way, when they come to water and he says, here's water, is there something that prevents me from being baptized? He'd been prevented all of his life from going into the assembly of God's people. And yet, he worshipped as close as he could get. And of course, you know, Philip's answer is, no, nothing else holds you back anymore. But when Philip came up to him, heard him reading from Isaiah chapter 53, he asked him, do you understand? He said, how can I unless someone teaches me? And notice, then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him, Jesus. Now, did he preach more than Jesus? He did. He began right in the middle of the bullseye. And then he expanded outward. And he went from there. But he started with Jesus. And then you move from Jesus to the next circle. And the next circle is his suffering. In other words, okay, Jesus, God is here. Our God has come into the world. But what did he do? As Nathan said, we've got to talk about that. Notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 2. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ, there's the center of the bullseye, and him crucified, the next circle in the bullseye. And so you begin to move out from that bullseye as you describe what it is that this good news does in the world. And then the third circle is the kingdom of God. I mean, what does this Jesus who has suffered for us, lead us to be a part of. And that is God's kingdom. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, Jesus said. And so you get this circle that just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. But here's the point, brothers and sisters. Listen to me careful. you got to begin with the beginning, and that's Jesus. That's why passing out gospel tracts without... The message of the gospel is not going to do us any good. I mean, if someone doesn't know who Jesus is, then hearing, believing, repenting, confessing, and being baptized means nothing. And so you have to tell the good news that our God's come into the world, and through his life he's changed everything. And that's what we've got to believe if we're going to follow him. That's why when you literally begin to go down through the New Testament, I mean, just open up Matthew, go to Revelation, sometimes call the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of Christ, the gospel of his son. It's the gospel of the kingdom. It's the gospel of God or the blessed God. It's the gospel of your salvation because that's one of the benefits that it brings to you. And it also brings to you the gospel of peace. It gives peace between you and God and you and at least some of your fellow men is also the everlasting gospel because it will be preached until Jesus finally comes back. And so where do we begin? If we're going to change this world, if we're going to change the people who are around us, where does it begin? And it begins with a very simple process. And again, the response is important. You've got to get the response in there. I mean, at some point in time, Philip turned to the response, which prompted the eunuch to say, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? I mean, at some point in time, he introduced the response. But you've got to start with Jesus. And see, at least for me, that good news was left out when I was growing up. And left out of a lot of my preaching. I had an older preacher one time who sent word to me, Les, 
You need to preach more gospel. And i got to be honest with you, it offended me. Hurt my feelings. And of course, the point he was making is, he said, you're preaching a lot about our response to the gospel. But you're not giving us the good news. Because you've got people every Sunday sitting in the audience who need to hear good news. And so where do we begin? I go back to John, who never uses that word euangelion, never uses the verb form of it. He simply tells it. And I love this story of where Jesus goes and he calls Philip and says to him, follow me. And Philip does. And Philip immediately found Nathaniel, who we call Bartholomew, and says, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote. In other words, he says, listen, you remember Isaiah and what Isaiah was going to say happened and who was coming? He said, we found him. And he's Jesus of Nazareth. And of course, Nathaniel's like, Nazareth, are you kidding me? And then Philip says something that we need to say to people in the simplest words possible. Come and see. You see, I think if we present to people the story of Jesus, who he is, what he did, what he's doing now, and how we will live with him forever, or to use the words of Jesus, when I, when I am lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. And so let's simply invite the world to come and see. I don't know where you are today in your walk with God, but if you need some good news, that good news is named Jesus. And Jesus' invitation is always there to come and see. Come and see who he is. Come and learn about what he did. Come and learn what he offers to us. And then you have to make a choice. As, as Matthew says, or excuse me, as Mark said in Mark 16, you can either, either believe what you're told or you can not believe what it's told. And the result, of course, will depend on, you know, your decision. But today, if you're ready to come and see, if you're ready to come, and, for instance, and be baptized, we want to give you an opportunity to do that. You can come right now. As together we stand and sing.